are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. I appreciate uh, the work that Jamie does and the entire finance team. We're grateful for them. And, uh, you know, I thought it was uh, in addition to the mission efforts that we're helping fund through our giving, it was encouraging. Uh, I know some folks have uh, have uh, jumped on board and we are collecting items uh, this weekend for to create hygiene kits for people in Louisiana. Uh, Jamie's wife, Amy, is out of town this weekend because her sister had a baby, but also their house was flooded. And so I think we got, do we have those pictures, Sam? We had those earlier last night. But anyways, uh, this is her house, okay? They took 15 inches of, of water. And uh, there's about 60,000 homes in Louisiana like that uh, that have been impacted. The sh- shelters have people living in them. So we're going to partner with Matthew 25 Ministries to help create some hygiene kits for people living in the shelters there. It just kind of hit home when it's a, a sister of a family a church member here. And so those of you who brought in items today, that's great. And if you want to bring them in this evening uh, while the, the students are here for... Um, the, the student activities, you could do that as well. Well, um, with that said, this weekend we're going to be continuing our message series that we're looking at the dark sides. Uh, in other words, the hurts, the habits, and the hang-ups of some fascinating characters described in Scripture. Today we're going to look at uh, the son of the guy we looked at last week. If you were here last week, we looked at how King David had a lot of grief and had to deal a lot with loss in his life. And so we looked at that dark side of, of a famous character in the Bible. And today we're going to look at his son Solomon, who we're describing for our purposes as a wise addict. Now, I know that's kind of an oxymoron, but uh, we're going we're gonna to dig into his life and see some lessons that we can learn from some of the dark side of him and how that maybe that will speak into our lives, but yet we're going to look at the hope that Scripture offers in light of that. So with that said, let's uh, let's just pray and ask God to bless our time now as we open up His Word. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for just uh, what a great God you are. We want to thank you, Father, as, as Jamie just shared. I mean, you have blessed this church in so many ways. You've blessed us uh, with resources. You've blessed us with people, with talented people. We, you've blessed us with opportunities in this community to serve others. And, and Father, we just truly want to be your hands and feet uh, here in this community and throughout the world as you give us opportunity. And so we just pray that you'll guide us to be that church. And Father, I pray that as we open up your word now, that you'll really speak to our hearts. Father, we're thankful that your word... Uh, points out the good, the bad, and the ugly of people that trusted you. And that's good for us, Father, because sometimes we see the, the bad and the ugly in our lives. And yet, Father, in that, uh, we thank you for the hope that we can, can find in your word. So we just pray that your spirit will guide our time 
and work through me to speak to every person that's here. We love you, God. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, as uh, we, we shared uh, before I prayed, Solomon truly is a fascinating character. And as he emerges on the scene in Scripture, we, we're first introduced to him. He has this great attitude, uh, and he, he demonstrates a great promise for the future. And yet we're going to see there's a, there's a dark side to his life. Now, as we're introduced to Solomon, uh, we see a humble heart that's eager to serve the Lord. Uh, and he, he desires to lead the people of Israel as his dad, King David, had. In fact, as we're introduced to him, uh, God speaks into Solomon's life and actually uh, gives him this incredible promise. Let's read about it. It's 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. It says, that night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and God said, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Now, let's pause for just a moment. If God were to speak to you in a dream and say, ask whatever you want, and it will be given to you. What would you ask? I mean, that's, that's an amazing offer that the Lord presents to Solomon. I mean, would you ask for money? Would you ask for fame? Would you ask for popularity? Would you ask for success in your career? Would some of you ask for a Bengals playoff win? I mean, I don't know what it is that you would ask for, but think, you say that's never going to happen? Oh, that hurt. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a Colts fan, so I have to rub it in there a little bit, although I don't know we've been doing much better. But anyways, with that said, listen to how Solomon shows incredible maturity for a, uh, probably someone in their 20s. Okay, listen to his response in verse 6. Solomon replied, and we skip on down to verse 9, give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well. And know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked, had asked for wisdom. Now that's a, that's a great response by this young promising king. And, and in fact, God was so pleased with Solomon's heart and his response that the Scripture says that he it, it gave him wisdom. In fact, he was the wisest uh, person on earth. But not only that, but, but he gave him wealth and, and resources and, and success in his leadership. We see that, that Solomon carried that, that same heart over as he wrote uh, uh, one of the books in the Bible that we have that he wrote, uh, the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapter 1, as he begins this book of wisdom, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Although Solomon begins his time as king of Israel, demonstrating a healthy fear and respect for the Lord. And he wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know, and by the way, on, on just on that point, there was a number of years where I kind of shied away from talking about the fear of the Lord and because I thought that many people translated that being frightened by the Lord. And maybe that's how some of you hear that, that idea of fear of the Lord. 
But as you dig into that word and that phrase a little bit more, that, that means something different than being frightened, okay? Maybe some of you have had that experience in the past. This idea of fear of the Lord means a, a healthy uh, respect, being in awe of God, that He's awesome, and that He is God and that you are not. And to have a humble respect for His instructions found in His Word, and a willingness to turn over our will and our lives to His care. You see, that was how Solomon began his leadership in Israel. And yet, unfortunately, he didn't hold to that. Unfortunately, a dark side began to creep in. And let's read about that later in this same book that we were first introduced to him in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from a number of countries. Verse 2, the Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Now, I just, I'm just kind of amazed when I read that, okay? Uh, I don't know if anybody else that just kind of, you know, kind of sets you back a little bit. You know, I've, I've been married for 33 years to a wonderful woman, and I love being married to Jane, and I enjoy life, but I'm, I'm trying to learn all the time how to be a better husband. I pray regularly, Lord, show me how to love my wife as Christ loves the church, and, and I've got so much to learn. I can't imagine a thousand wives. I mean, that just staggers my mind. Uh, that, that doesn't sound good at all, and, and it seems to me that, that and by the way, on this point, sometimes people will make comments like, well, I don't know if I can worship a God that, that you know, uh, uh, condoned or uh, encouraged like polygamy or some of the things we read about in the Bible and the Old Testament. I think what we've got to make sure as we understand as we read this text is that this was not God's will. In fact, specifically, God said, do not do this. But Solomon insisted on doing it his way, and it got him in trouble. And so I think that's important for us, for us to take to heart. Now, some might want to argue with me that Solomon wasn't an addict, and yet I think if he had a thousand wives, he had an issue, okay? Now, I know some of those were political, you know, uh, arrangements, and yet I think that the, the number of concubines show there's something else going on there, okay? But we won't go into all that. But, but if we define an addiction as, as the way the psychology today describes an addiction, a condition that results when a person ingests a substance, whether it be alcohol, cocaine, nicotine, or engages in an activity, whether it be gambling, uh, sex, shopping, that can be pleasurable, but the continued use or act of which becomes compulsive and interferes with ordinary life responsibilities such as work, relationships, or health, then that's an addiction. If we use the simple definition of being hooked on a substance or an activity that becomes compulsive and interferes with ordinary life, then I would suggest to you that Solomon had become compulsive. 
that he was addicted to entering into relationships with women, and, and he was addicted to continually getting married. And if another aspect of addiction is not being able to stop using a substance or an activity, even when we know it's bad for us, then I, yes, I would say Solomon was addicted to women or to marriage. Now, this matter of addiction is a serious thing in our culture, in our lives. And although sometimes we use the, the, the word flippantly, we say, well, I'm addicted to this TV show or I'm addicted to watching, following this sports team. The truth of it is there, there's a lot of people that uh, are headed down a path of self-destruction because of addiction. And they've found their life out of control and unmanageable. Just this week in the Columbus Dispatch, this is what the newspaper said, across Ohio, someone died from a drug overdose every two hours and 52 minutes on average all year long in 2015. That's eight people a day. Drug overdoses killed a record 3,050 people in Ohio last year. And from everything I'm hearing in the news and tracking, that, that rate of, of death is even higher this year. Now, to help make this topic personal, I want you to consider that in the last month, there have been three individuals who are members here that I know of who have had a relative die because of alcohol or drugs. And one of those is me. About three weeks ago, my cousin's son died of a drug overdose. He had battled addiction for years, and it finally led to his death. Maybe you, too, have a friend or family member that's struggling with addiction. Maybe you've had a loss in your life because of somebody just allowed an addiction to take over their lives. And if we're really honest with ourselves this weekend as we look at our own lives and hearts, maybe some of us are secretly battling with an addiction in our life, and yet we've not yet sought help for it. I agree with Dr. Gerald May, the author of a book entitled Addiction and Grace, who wrote, I'm not being flippant when I say that all of us suffer from addiction. I mean, in all truth, that the psychological neurological and spiritual dynamics of full-fledged addiction are actively at work within every human being. As I'm honest with myself, personally, I've had to wrestle with my own addictive behavior in certain areas of habits, hurts, and hang-ups. And in my interactions with others in this church fellowship and in this community, I've had numerous conversations with individuals who recognize that a particular addiction or destructive habit is creating a real mess in their lives and in their relationships with others. Like Solomon, many of these individuals have, have at one time showed great promise in life, successfully held jobs, and, and maybe are still successfully holding down a job. 
And they can put on a smiling face. And many times, and this has been my experience, many times addicts have very endearing personalities. And they can really come across very like everything's okay and that, that everything's going fine. But even though they might have that smiling face and facade inside, they might know down deep that they're falling apart. Or as one friend confided in me, they, he recognized a cycle of addiction and guilt and remorse. Can you relate to that? Is that true in your life? Through the years, I've had numerous interactions with people who recognized that their life was spiraling out of control, that they were hurting themselves and that they were hurting others due to their compulsive behavior. Some have sought help, and they're on that path of recovery. Others are still suffering and maybe in secret. I reached out to five of my friends that I know have sought help and are on a good path now in life. And I asked for their input in preparing for this message. One of my friends confided in me that they were, when they were first confronted with the truth that their life had become unmanageable, that they denied that was their reality. You see, at this point in their life, they were living in denial, not wanting to admit that that they were in this cycle of self-medication that was spinning out of control until they finally hit this point in their life that they were, realized they were hitting bottom. It was only at this point that they recognized that they were ready to lose their job, their family, friends, their health, that they reached out to one individual that they trusted for help. And that one individual led them to another individual and led them to another individual. And now this person is living a healthy life. As we wrestle with this topic of addiction, which I believe has its tendency to run in certain families, and I don't question that there are some that are genetically predisposed to certain addictive behaviors. It just, I've seen that in my own family. And yet, let's try to get to the very heart of addiction as we look at Solomon this weekend. We can see that as he continued down the path of self-will, ignoring God's instructions for his life, that he began to sense an emptiness in his life that was probably not obvious to others. I mean, he was the king, and he, he lived with royalty, and, and there was a pomp, and, and I started to say pomp and circumstances, but I think that's a song before graduation. But I mean, there was just this this, you know, this, there was this regality about him, and I'm sure other people thought, man, Solomon's got it made. And yet he writes this incredible book that's still preserved for us in Scripture. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, you can see that things weren't as they appeared. Listen to how he begins the book in Ecclesiastes 1. He says, these are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Now listen to this beginning, verse 2. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. Now maybe some of you have started reading Ecclesiastes. You get to verse 2, you say, man, this is depressing. And you've shut it or turned to another book in the Bible. But what I want to encourage you, if you've never read this great book, I encourage you to go back and read it. Stay, stay with it. Yes, it, there's kind of some bleak moments. There's kind of some dark side moments in this book. But if you will keep persevering through the book, 
you'll see at the end incredible hope. You know, as one author or commentator said, Ecclesiastes is all about the search for the meaning of life. And yet, what I appreciate about Ecclesiastes is that, that it seems to me that Solomon's taking down the mask a little bit. He's, he's taking away the veneer facade, and he's letting us look into his life and, and his heart and his soul, and we can see some of the emptiness that he struggled with. Maybe that he was trying to, to mask by continuing to enter into relationships with yet another woman. Maybe that was the way he was trying to self-medicate his emptiness. In chapter 3, Solomon writes in verse 11, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from the beginning to end. I love this verse and this description that Solomon gives of how God planted eternity in the hearts of people. You know, my mom grew up in a family that was totally unchurched. They didn't go to church at all. And, and my mom says she doesn't know why, but when she was about four or five years old, she just started praying and talking to God, even though she wasn't raised going to church. And I think it's because God planted eternity in her heart. I'm grateful that she later became a Christian, her and my dad, and that made all the difference in my life. You know, one uh, philosopher and mathematician, you need a good quote from a mathematician every week, okay? This is from a guy named Pascal. And this is what Pascal said. He says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, we would say every human today, which, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. I think that's what Solomon's saying. God's placed eternity. God's placed this God-shaped hole in every person's life. And yet the question is, what are we trying to fill that hole or that vacuum with? Far too many people spend their entire life trying to find other things besides God to fill that hole or that vacuum. Whether it be relationships, whether it be careers, hobbies, projects, or pleasure. In fact, as you read through Ecclesiastes, you see Solomon tried all those things. And then some fall into the addictive cycle of turning to uh, relying upon food to comfort us, drink, sex, pornography, substances that self-medicate and can help us find temporary relief or escape. And yet inside, we still can, if we try to put anything other than God in that vacuum, we still find ourselves incredibly empty. As we continue to read in Ecclesiastes in the book of Proverbs that Solomon also wrote, we see this, the damaging result of addiction. Now, I think it's important to state that even good things can become addictive, okay? Okay, for example, we're not saying that food or drink or sex are, are, are wrong in and of themselves, okay? God created those things. He created sexuality to be in marriage, to be a great gift of intimacy, and yet people abuse that gift. We're not saying food's bad, but if you turn to food for comfort in times of stress, then that becomes a substance you're trying to fill that hole with. Well, same with alcohol or drugs. 
And it, as we read in, in Ecclesiastes, we see that even wisdom can become that. Listen to what Solomon wrote. He said, I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Can you relate to that? That, that illustration, that phrase of chasing after the wind. When we try to fill our lives up with something other than God, it's just like a chasing after the wind. You think, okay, now I'm gonna be happy, but then it's just like another wind gust comes along and it blows it away, just, just out of your reach. It's a chasing after the wind. You're never quite there. Now, this, this is an example of how someone can be addicted to even good things, whether it be education, always seeking that one more degree or an advancement in career or your work. That's, that's how sometimes people can, can become workaholics or they become compulsive of preoccupation with continually strengthening their financial portfolio or a continual quest or fast fanaticism for a particular hobby, interest, or sports team. And yet, oftentimes it falls in the area of arena of pleasure, always searching for that particular high or feeling. And that's often rooted in a desire to self-medicate ourselves and try to deal with that emptiness that only God can fill up. Solomon wrote on in, in chapter 2, he says, I, verse 1, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. And then in verse 3, he says, after much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. And in the in Proverbs, Solomon paints this incredible picture of somebody who's turning to alcohol for relief, and yet how that, that is, that's an illusion. And it's a, it's a vicious cycle. In fact, in fact, this week, as I was talking to some of my friends that are in recovery for various addictions, uh, on one of them, I was talking on the phone with them, and I just said, hey, have you ever read Proverbs 23? And I read it to this individual, and they went, wow, that describes my life for far too long. Listen to Proverbs 23, verse 29. Solomon wrote, who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who's always fighting? Who's always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? It's the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down for it. In the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. You will see hallucinations and you will see crazy things. You will stagger like a sailor tossed at sea, clinging to a swaying mast. And you will say, they hit me, but I didn't feel it. I didn't even know it when they beat me up. When will I wake up so I can look for another drink? Can you relate to these descriptions that Solomon gives of, of that chasing after the wind, of, of, of trying to self-medicate that, that emptiness inside, and yet it never fills you up? And you only get in this cycle of being trapped by the addiction. Well, that's the picture 
that Solomon paints. And yet the good news is today there's hope. There's hope for everyone, but there's hope, especially this weekend, for somebody who identifies themselves of having an addiction. And I want to hold out that hope this weekend to you. And I want to also equip you, those of you who maybe know someone that you see in, in, in the struggle right now of addiction, and maybe they're being overwhelmed with that addiction. And I want to I want to, before we conclude with some specific time-tested steps of recovery, I would like to just say a a few words to those who have a friend, a spouse, or a family member who's struggling with addiction. And by the way, if that's you, then I want you to know I can relate. I have a family member that is still facing the consequences in his life for addiction. And I pray for him every day. And I pray every day that God will give me an opportunity to hold out hope so that he can find there's a better way to live. But if, so if you can relate to that, I, I'd like to just say a few words to you. You see, you can't control the person in your life who's the addict. You see, the person who's the addict, has to get to the point where they hit bottom and they see their need for help. They have to get to the point where they're willing to seek help. You can't force them to get help. Now, if you say, well, that sounds like self-help top, that sounds like 12-step language, well, let me share with you, I think it's also a biblical approach as well. Remember the story Jesus told about the father who had two sons? We typically call this story the the story of the prodigal son, right? Do you remember the younger son, what he said to the father? He says, give me my portion of the estate and I, I want to go spend it now. And the father lets him go. And the Bible says that the, the son goes out and he spends the money in wild living and he finds himself destitute. And he finds himself in the lowest condition that somebody in the Jewish culture would describe. He, he finds himself in the pig pen feeding the pigs, longing to eat the food that he was feeding the pigs. And Jesus tells this story, and he says that the father lets him go, and he waits for the son to hit bottom. And when the son hits bottom in the pig pen, then he realizes, I know there's help available at my father's house. And so he returns to the father. And of course, the, the picture Jesus paints of the father, which represents God in the story, is a God who is there to embrace the son and to welcome him home. But did you notice that the father didn't go chasing after him? He waited until the son recognized his need for help. I think godly love is holding out hope and holding out help. But let me share with you, and I know this from firsthand in my family, if you try to change someone who doesn't want to get help, the only thing that you do is make yourself sick. So I think the Christian response is to continue to hold out hope and to point people there's a better way of life when they're ready. On numerous occasions, I've offered 
to go with individuals who've confided in me that they have an addiction problem. I've offered to go with them to their first AA meeting or their first NA meeting or their first meeting of whatever kind that would help them with what they're struggling with them. See, you see, I can't do the work for them, but I can point them to the source of help. For the past 35 years, I've been around and known a number of friends who are in a spiritual program of recovery known as AA or Alcoholics Anonymous. And personally, I'm a big fan of these groups because I've seen the effect and I've seen the result. I'm also a big fan of the Celebrate Recovery program that was started by Saddleback Church. It's a Christ-centered recovery program that's offered by many churches. Presently, we don't offer that here. We, we, we tried, we offered it for a while, and it, it didn't really take off. But if someone feels led to spearhead this effort, it's a big undertaking. But if you're, if you're interested in that, I would gladly prayerfully support you in that effort. But because we don't offer that, what I know can be of great help to someone that comes to grips with addiction is to go with them to their first AA meeting. And I've done that before, and I'm willing to do it again. One of my friends shared with me that until they sought help and started going to an AA meeting, they had no idea that there was a better way to live. Now they realize that life is meant to be happy, joyous, and free. Personally, I find the 12 Steps of Recovery Program to be helpful. I wanted to share with you as we close this morning the first three steps because possibly there's someone in the crowd that just hearing these steps will help you see there's a better way to live life. The first step of NA or AA is, is what I believe Jesus described as being poor in spirit in the Beatitudes. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over our addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. To take this first step of recovery, the person must be willing to admit there is a problem and that they can't personally fix that problem with their own power. This leads to a second step. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could help restore us to sanity. Now, when I take a friend to an AA meeting or an NA meeting, I will say, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is that higher power. And I encourage them to look to him. And I understand these support groups are for people that are Jewish and uh, Muslim and Buddhist and all different kinds of religion or even irreligious. And so I understand it's more generic, but when I try to influence people, I try to impress upon them that Jesus Christ is the higher power that they really are looking for. And step three, we make, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. This is a daily decision. And that's what I believe Jesus teaches us to pray on a daily basis, that, that your kingdom come, your will be done, as we learn to surrender our will to God's will. And for the person seeking the sanity that comes from sobriety, we have to realize that it's a daily decision. You can't think too far in advance. You can't think, okay, Three months from now, I need to be sober. You just need to take each day at a time. In fact, Jesus said there's great wisdom in there. He says each day has enough trouble of its own. So take it one day at a time. One of the friends that I reached out to shared this quote with me. He said, 
Surrender to God's will and know that he can and will return you to sanity. I made that decision quite a few 24 hours ago and it changed my life forever. Do these three steps speak into your life? Maybe you need to take them. Maybe you need somebody to help you, show you the way. If that's the case, then let me know. I also had a number of people I reached out to who said, give them our phone number, Roger. We'll go with them to their first meeting if they need help. Well, as we conclude our time together, we return to our wise addict Solomon. It does appear that at the end of Ecclesiastes, he began to catch a vision of a truly happy, joyous, and free life. You have to stick with the book, but when you read through Ecclesiastes, you get to the end. In chapter 12, verse 13, he says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God. You see, he came back to that where he started in Proverbs 1. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. You see, we, think, we can think we're hiding some things, uh, some things about our compulsive, self-destructive behavior away from other people, but the truth is, God knows. And God is like the father in Jesus' story, the prodigal son. He's waiting patiently for us to come to our senses and return to him. As I shared earlier, I think these first three steps of 12-step programs can be helpful for anyone to help see their need to come to Christ. And in many ways, I think that that's a, a great thing for us to think about even as we approach communion today, as we conclude our time together. You see, in communion every weekend, we're reminded of the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. We're gonna be passing these trays where you're gonna have an opportunity to take a piece of bread to remind you that Jesus was real and that he came to this earth. He lived in the physical body. He died on a cross. He was raised from the dead bodily. And then we're gonna take the cup to remember that Jesus went through great sacrifice, willing to shed his blood for us. And in this communion, if you think about the first three steps, I want you to think about that today as you take communion. That by taking communion, you're saying that you, that we, are powerless to save ourselves. And that without Christ, our lives would be unmanageable. We would have no answer for our guilt or for our sin. I believe that to be true. That's why I became a Christian. It's because my life had become unmanageable. The second step, as you, as you take communion, think about we recognize in Christ and, and the Holy Spirit that he gives to his followers that there is a power available that can restore us to sanity and wholeness and peace. And step three, we must make a decision each week and each day to turn our will and our lives over to a Savior who will lead us into a life of joy peace, and meaning. As we take communion together now, can you say those things? That you're powerless to save yourself and that you need him? Can you say, yes, there's a power in him that I don't have in myself. 
And thirdly, rededicating yourself for another week of surrendering yourself to His way and His will and His direction. Think about that as we spend this time in communion remembering Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you that your word provides hope. Thank you, Father, that the hope, we're reminded today, the hope, the power is not within ourselves, but it's within you. Help us look to you. Help us surrender ourselves to you and your will for our lives. Help us, Father, to truly look to you for meaning and direction and purpose. And fill our hearts with gratitude during this time of communion that Jesus provides a better way for our lives. Help us soak that up now and reflect on that and focus on that as we begin this new week in Christ. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you.